everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon, and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. So I'm joined today by Dr. Dave Finley, Associate Professor in Immunometabolism in Trinity College, Dublin. So Dave's research focuses on manipulating inappropriate immune responses with a particular focus on cellular metabolism and how that impacts our immune cell function. And so Dave has been the recipient of many awards, such as the Marie Curie Fellowship, SFI, and the prestigious European Research Council Consolidator Award. Um, And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to sit down and chat to you today, Dave. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science. Thanks, Megan, for having me. So um, I suppose in this podcast, I kind of want to get a sense of people behind the science and the people behind the lab coats um, and kind of bring people through your career and your progress uh, through academia. So I suppose firstly, like, what were you like in school? Were you always kind of science mad or interested in science or did you have different aspirations back then? Um, I wasn't just science mad. I did, I did enjoy science. The other career I might have followed at one point was accountancy. I loved, I loved maths. And I think at one point in my life, it was probably a, a toss-up between accountancy and science. And I wasn't sure. I remember filling up my CAO and I wasn't, you know, which, 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 but in the end, I went for science, thank, thankfully, because, oh my, I think <laughs> I, 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 no, no offence to accountants, but um, I, I much prefer the excitement of science compared to maybe the, what seems like a more mundane career in, in accountancy. So yeah, so th- those are the two. I was also big into. I think my defining memory of school was I used to play a lot of rugby, and I loved that. So the, the school often took a schooler took often took the second uh, second fiddle to the sport. But um, and and like when you were kind of filling out your CEO, was that a thing that because accountancy and science are completely different? So was that a thing that your kind of subjects you were good at? Was it like you know? A- yeah. And what science subjects did you do then for the leaving stage? So I actually didn't do biology. Um, okay. I did chemistry, chemistry and physics. I loved physics. Uh, I had a great, I had a really amazing physics teacher. Really sort of inspired me, uh, Mr. Kelly in, in my school. And uh, he, he really explained, he, he, he taught me maths as well. So he was a great teacher and I love physics. I love chemistry as well. And actually when I came to, I actually also toyed with um doing theoretical physics at one point as well but I, I turned away from that so I went for science and I remember I, I, I'd, ch- I'd chosen physics and I, and I remember going into the first physics lecture and just looking around and thinking you know what this isn't for me and I, for whatever reason for whatever reason I, I don't I don't know exactly what made me decide that so I walked straight out to my down to my tutor and said I wanted to do biology so that's where that's when I started doing biology so even even nowadays sometimes some people uh, you know say something to me and it's about something they learned in, in leaving their biology and I go oh I never knew that yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's definitely some little little gaps in my biology knowledge um, but I, I think I caught I think I caught up over the years and like you know was that a big jump or like the the degree you did I think was biochemistry in the end so right, it was probably yeah. a mixture between the two yeah so when you start off in science in Trinity it starts off pretty pretty you know they, they cover a lot of the old even sort of material anyway so it's actually um it's, it was not too hard to catch up in fact you know the the chemistry was I done quite well in chemistry and even search I found first year chemistry very easy because it was really rehashing a lot of what we'd done so actually I was able to catch up with 
biology all right um, and then you, you start to specialize after three after on year three of the degree and that's when I went into biochemistry and by that stage I was quite comfortable with a lot of the biochemistry a lot of the biology so yeah it was easy to catch up yeah and like throughout your undergrad did you always kind of have an inkling that you wanted to stay in research or, or go on to do a PhD or was that more in your final year you know what these days we always expect students to be these driven I know what I'm going to do from the start you know when I, you know from the, when I finished primary school I knew uh, this is my career direction um, which I think is a bit unfair, you know, but uh, I wasn't like that at all. I just, I kind of just drifted along. Um, I, I I did biochemistry because it was probably just, I I enjoyed those aspects of second year most. And then um, I hadn't thought about after college at all. I hadn't thought about it at all, but I did my final year project in biochemistry and I really liked it. I really enjoyed it and I threw myself into it. I remember someone who used to be working there till 10 at night, you know, to running experiments just because we just loved the whole process of, of, you know, this is the question, you know, design the experiment and get the results. So it was, it was, it was great. And, and after that, I decided, well, listen, I'm, I'm enjoying this. You know, I hadn't thought about jobs. I may as well just keep on, keep on going. And other people around me were applying for PhDs. So I said, right, well, um, I, I'll look into that. But I actually took a year out after college. So, uh, so because I hadn't organized anything. So I took a year out and I went traveling and mm. just uh, enjoyed myself for a bit. And then in that time, I, I managed to get a, a PhD, which was over over in uh, in Dundee in Scotland. Were you anxious about that move or were you excited to, I suppose, to have a big adventure in a, in a new city? I don't know whether I, I, when I was young I don't, don't think I even I thought about things enough to be anxious about it so it was just like you know I'd just been to Thailand and Malaysia and all around the world you know Dundee didn't didn't seem like that much of an adventure but but actually it was a bizarre year actually because of our biochemistry class I think it was eight eight students from our biochemistry went into PhDs in Dundee so I bought half the half the class went with us so we had great crack over in over in Dundee and we're at, you know in the first year when we had before we settled down over out in the pubs and the clubs and it was great fun because I knew I knew loads of people and there's a great scientific community over there so it was, it was, it was a really nice place to do a PhD actually it's real the, the city itself might not be the most attractive city in the world but for science it's you can't you can't do better yeah, I do know a good few people who've gone over and, and done their degrees over in Dundee or PhDs and it seems quite like a student town which is probably nice because there's probably a lot of young people in the town it is there is a lot of young people it's also quite an impoverished town so you know it was it was hit, hit pretty bad by some of the uh, the losses of some of the industry the industry it used to be big into juice the, the rope building in, in Dundee and when when all the industry uh, was lost there's a huge increase in employment uh, a lot of Irish immigrants actually there's places in Dundee called Little, Little Tipperary because back in the day a lot of Irish people immigrated there so it's a very poor town but then there's also a very large student student population and also a, a large proportion of the economy is actually driven by science by the university uh, and by uh, small startup businesses in the science area as well so so it's a, it's a, and it's so it's an interesting mix of things going on there but it was a, it was definitely a good place um to do your, your phd your postdoc there's a lot of driven people there so we, people tend to be you know work very hard you know and uh, so it was, it was a good atmosphere to, to sort of achieve a bit in science and like a kind of a question i do ask people is is there anyone kind of in your life that you look back and i know you mentioned your physics teacher there but even throughout your undergrad degree and going on to your phd who kind of really spurred you on and really encouraged you to kind of take on this path yeah i don't think my science career was was hugely successful during my phd you know i i did a, a fair bit of work and got some papers and you know it was a good 
stint. But I think I really sort of hit the ground running when I got to my postdoc. And that was definitely courtesy of, of my mentor, you know, Doreen Cantrell, who was just a fantastic boss and really inspired, you know, uh, big thinking and, and big experiments. She had a, she was well-funded by the Wellcome Trust at, the, at that, that point. And we had that, all these fantastic uh, transgenic mouse, mouse crosses. And it was a really, a really enjoyable time, you know, um, I didn't have to worry about grant writing, didn't have to worry about anything really, you know, it was just go in and do the experiment. So, so it, there's a lot of the other stresses were gone, we just focused mm. on the research and uh, it was a very well-resourced lab and building. So, you know, we, if you thought of the experiment, you could probably do it. And, and that was that was really exciting time to be, you know, and, and Doreen was a, a brilliant, and, and is a brilliant mind, you know, she's hugely well-respected uh, in the immunology field. But it, it was actually quite a big change at that point because I, I hadn't worked in immunology until that point. So yeah, so actually, I only started doing immunology when I when I moved to Dorian's lab because I'd done my degree in biochemistry and my my PhD was on biochemistry as well. Worked on parasites. So you know, when I when I first started in Dorian's, I took the you know the immunology bible, the Janeway textbook on holidays with me, and you know I was reading, trying to frantically catch up with um, with immunology. But I always joke with my my staff, you know, or the guys who work with me, you know, that, that I never finished that book. I only got halfway through. So the second the second part of immunology, I'm a bit patchy on. So, <laughs> so we always have a good laugh at that. But but uh, I, I've been working on immunology ever since, and and uh, I'm enjoying it. But Dorian was definitely the person who gave me that real sort of a spark for science you know uh, you know since i since i joined her lab i've really known this is something that you know i really enjoy something that i want to pursue and gave me the drive to to try go for being an uh, independent scientist but, you know that, that that jump from postdoc to to pi is a tough one but you know having worked with dorian i knew yeah, i knew it was for me and I think that's such a like important point in the sense that people who are kind of not in academia or in, in scientific research might think you start off your PhD and you work on that if you continue for the rest of your life. But that isn't what happens, you know, and people can jump from, from fields to fields, um, although generally you kind of tend to stick with one near the end. Um, but I think that's such a testament to the fact that this is such a job where you're learning all the time and you're kind of a lifelong learner. Absolutely, you know. And, and often, it's, you know, especially when you're moving from your postdoc to, to your own to your own lab, it's often the last thing you worked on that you then take forwards. You know, I'd never, like, everybody knows me as somebody who works on metabolism now, but I didn't work on metabolism ever really beforehand. You know, in Dorian's lab, I was working on signaling. I was working on, on the T-cell development in the thymus. And it was only the last six months where we, we decided to push for one more paper to try and help me get grants and stuff. Um, that I started working on mTOR and uh, T-cell metabolism. And then when I got my job in, in Trinity, well, that, that's what I did. So then all of a sudden I, I came along and then people knew me as, and then I've been working on that ever since. Now I, I really enjoy it. But sometimes your, your your career can take quite unexpected twists and turns in that, in that way. And you're right. We're always learning. I'm, you know, it, the, the, the days I enjoy most when I, I finally get some time to actually search through the literature on an area that I've been in, intrigued about and trying to le- learn up about that and constantly, constantly le- learning and, and uh, learning new things. Yeah, and even kind of within that, immunology and metabolism is such a vast field. So even if you had done your PhD or you'd started out from from there, I feel like you'd still be constantly learning, regardless of the fact that you kind of switched halfway through. Oh, it's it's a massive, a massive uh, area, and you know, I remember you know I, I, when I did my PhD, when I started my PhD, I wasn't working metabolism, but I was working on cell signaling, and it was similarly daunting because all these signaling pathways, like you learn all these pathways and. They're all linear signaling pathways. Then you realize nothing's linear. It's all interconnected. And it just, you know, it just an absolute blows your mind how, how complicated things are. 
And actually, now in ten years working in Sydney, I finally thought I, I understood it and how all these, you know, it started to become a bit more of a web of signaling pathways rather than all these discrete signaling pathways. But then I jumped into metabolism and it was even worse. You know, it's an even more of a, a sort of a bird's nest of interconnected pathways. So it's it's very daunting starting off at those things. You know, it's much easier when you've been working on there for ten years and you kind of know the structure of it, and mm-hmm. then you learn something new and you kind of, you slot you slot that little piece of new information. But for something new, it's like it's it's completely overwhelming and daunting. So it is it is a very difficult field to get get your head around. You know, immunology is complicated, and then mm-hmm. metabolism on, on top of that. But yeah, that, that's why we, we kind of run these things like the Immuno Metabolism Forum to try and make these things more accessible to up and coming researchers. Because you know, I think I think that's a, a helpful forum for doing that. Yeah, and and I suppose for people who don't know, that's a forum where you get you know early career researchers, PhDs, postdocs to kind of talk about the research and discuss it, but in quite a welcoming I suppose arena in the sense that you can ask questions and you know I know when we were in Trinity you'd always say whoever asks a question can have a yeah. beer after and I think that's yeah. great because sometimes it can be kind of you know stressful and daunting to ask a question because you think it's a reflection on your knowledge which it's, it's not you know. I remember in where I where I am um, did my PhD was quite a how's the word but there were these meetings and they were very serious it wasn't friendly was not a word at all it was very serious meetings and it was with all these uh, pharmaceutical companies who pumped millions into this so you know you know, the researchers were trying to impress the pharma, pharma companies and the PhD students were in there and you were encouraged to ask questions but I think they even offered a beer but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly enough of an incentive <laughs> but I do remember the first time I asked a question I remember the moment I thought I've got a question to ask and my, my heart just went, went through like was pounding I never never experienced such a rush of whatever and you know, I, I forced myself to ask the question, but it was just one of the, one of the most scariest things I've ever done was asking that, that question in front of all these all these companies, in front of all these experts, because you, know, you don't look foolish. So I know. So you know, I haven't done that in those in these really hard environments. So I hope it's easier in IMF. I suspect it's probably still difficult for anybody to ask a question because it is really putting yourself out there. You know, and uh, and you know, uh, you know, for years after that, I was still getting flushes you know heart palpitations when you when you realize you're going to ask a question it's a little less now but even sometimes now you know at a, at a big mm. conference and there's some big people there you respect they oh jeez i hope this isn't a stupid question uh, but you know you just got to ask nobody nobody judges anybody though know, especially not in in our imf you, know, you ask any questions no stupid questions we just want people to be curious and if you have a question ask us um, and and that's the way we all learn yeah and you know i definitely i i be kind of nervous as well definitely and even I think it took me you know a while even in our own lab meetings which these are people I know yeah. you know very yeah, yeah, yeah. like I work with all the time and it's funny kind of since I've started to see this podcast I've realized there's so many questions that I don't like I might know what you work on but I have so many questions now about what you work on that I probably wouldn't might not have asked you in those forums because I'd be a bit nervous so actually yeah. for my own personal development this podcast has been great because I'm yeah. I'm more forthcoming with questions because I kind of have to ask them in this setting. And hopefully, I mean, I don't look stupid because this is going to be online. So (laughs) (laughs) people can listen back. I'm very confident neither of us look stupid yet. There's still time. There's still time. But so far, I think we're all right. I think we're all right. Yeah. So I suppose this is a good kind of, you know, way to get into the research. So I really want to know kind of what you do. So I suppose give us kind of an overview on, you know, the immune cells you work on. I suppose maybe the immune system broadly immune cells you work on and then kind of how metabolism ties into that or where your research in metabolism feeds into that 
Yeah, so I, I my lab actually works in a couple of, uh, of cell subsets, and it's it's purely at a happenstance, and that wasn't planned. It was just based on you know when I first arrived here in in, in Trinity, I had no no real money to work on, so I used to just go around scavenging whatever cells I could work on, and I and people used to have bone marrow available, so I used to work on bone marrow DC. So some of the first work we did was on dendritic cells, which I'd never worked before. But so we're we're a bit, a bit scattered in that way. But in general, you know, uh, we we think that you know important part of controlling the shape and the direction of the immune response is nutrients is metabolism is what sort of environment the cells are in and it's it's, it's an area that's been largely to, to some degree being overlooked until now people have been focusing on what cells they are there you know this cell interacts with that cell but not necessarily well what's what else is there you know so if you, if you think about one of the most important interactions that happens in the immune system it's a dendritic cell meeting a t-cell and instructing it that we need an immune response mm. say for instance we covid you're, you're infected with covid we need to drive those t-cells that are going to help you in in combating covid those cd8 cytotoxic t-cells that are going to go out and find those virally infected cells and kill them we need to get them going and that's a in some ways you know the immunology focus on those on those two interactions but you've got to remember that this is probably happening within an inflamed lymph node, which is uh, loads of activated cells. And, you know, one of the things we've learned in the last seven, eight years is that when you act, immune cells once become activated, they need lots more fuel because they start going from something that doesn't do much to something that does lots. So a T-cell, for instance, naive T-cells, you know, they're absolutely essential for us, but they're, they're rather boring. All they do is go from the lymph node into the blood round and round. And some of our T-cells will go round and round between our blood and all our lymph nodes all our life without doing anything. But if a certain T cell becomes activated because we need that to combat a particular infection or virus or bacteria, it all of a sudden changes from a relatively, you know, doing nothing cell to massive growth, huge proliferation. So basically one cell becoming two cells, becoming three, becoming four cells, becoming sixteen cells, probably all within one one day. Mm. It's almost the limit of how fast a cell can divide. So you can imagine huge demands for fuel, for energy, for building blocks. So all this is happening within that lymph node. So we want to know whether at any point there becomes a, a sort of a, a, a deficit of nutrients. So are some cells becoming starved? And what happens if a cell becomes starved? We know there's there are some you know some situations where cells immune cells can become starved. Like for instance within tumors, which are very harsh microenvironments, and in those environments the cells stop working properly. So we think if we know when and where a cell can have access to nutrients, can fully engage its metabolic pathways that are required for doing what it needs to do, you know, as opposed to when it doesn't have nutrients and it can't fully engage those metabolic pathways, how that in- impacts their role in the immune response and how maybe if you have a, a situation where the cells you want to be working well aren't working well, can you find a way of sort of tweaking their metabolic machinery to help to give them a kickstart, you know, you, know, you, you work on, um, on arthritis, of course, you know, and the arthritis is again, is, is a different type of uh, sort of immune defect where you mm. have all your cells that you don't want to be attacking your knee, attacking your knee. So, you know, and of course they have metabolic pathways and so maybe we can target those metabolic pathways and stop them from doing that. You know, mm. if you have an autoimmune disease, it's, it's it can be really, uh, really awful disease because your immune system is, is wrong. It's now attacking yourself. Uh, and in the last 10 years, you know, we found that the targeting these metabolic pathways has really been quite exciting and there are new therapies coming through. So, you know, that's really a fast moving field, but that's the sort of things that we're now quite, uh, quite, keen, quite keen in pursuing.
And the sense that kind of, you know, you touched on it there about the, the tumour environment and that the tumour can maybe, I don't know if I'm right in saying this, take up a lot of the, the nutrients and maybe starve others. Uh, and how does that kind of immune cell in a normal activation state help us fight cancer and what can happen then when it's defective? Yeah, absolutely. So in cancer, you know, it's, it's funny because cancer sort of evolves in your body. So, you know, the cancer that we actually get, if you get a tumor, it's gone through a whole selection process because your immune system is very good at, select, at killing those cells. So if a, if a tumor actually forms, it's usually because they've mutated and they've they kind of picked up a few tricks on how to avoid the immune system and then picked up a few more. And so it, it's gone through this whole process, probably potentially over a large amount of time. And it's evolved into this cell mass that has the ability to basically avoid and evade the immune system. So usually... You know, you've got some very important cells that can find these, these transformed tumor cells. Uh, your NK cells, your natural killer cells, we work on those. They can directly see them and kill them. You've got your CDAT cells, which are cytotoxic cells as well. They can also find these tumor cells and directly kill them. Um, and they do them in a very elegant way. They, they, they form a really close interaction with them, and then they send out these poisonous granules that, um, that are fired at the cell, and they cause them to die. So, so we have very good uh, mechanisms for finding these, these tumor cells. But if you actually finally got cancer, it usually means that the cancer has found lots of additional ways to sort of either hide or evade or present barriers so those those nk cells and those cdap cells can't get mm. to those tumor cells or if when they get there get there they now don't work properly and, and actually an, an interesting idea that's coming out is that the metabolism of the of the cancer may be one part so the cancer has evolved to have this type of metabolism that competes for the the exact same fuels that the t cells are using so the because the cancer cells are taking up it's called it's, it's glucose it's a simple sugar because the cancer Cancer takes up all that glucose. We now know that the tumor microenvironment can be very, very low levels of glucose. And that's the exact same fuel that the NK cells need. It's the exact same fuel as the T cells need. So that's one way that the cancer cells can kind of turn off immune cells that are trying to kill it. So it's kind of it's a real, real battle going on there. But there are other ways, and we're, we're learning about new ways all the time. You know, one thing we're really interested in is, is these little molecules. They're like oxidized cholesterol molecules. So they're like cholesterol, but they've, they've been uh, slightly modified. They're called oxysterols. And we're interested in those because a while back we found that one of the key things that controls an NK cell and their ability to kill tumor cells is this, this little protein called SHREB. And SHREB is an important transcription factor that controls a whole range of genes. But it, it really allows the NK cell to ramp up its metabolic machinery to get to allow it to make lots of energy to allow it to make lots of oh, lots of those poisonous cytotoxic molecules that you it needs to kill tumor cells um, but these oxysterols can inhibit strep so if the tumor is making lots of oxysterols that's another way it can inhibit the actual key key protein that the nk cell needs to be, allow it to be a very potent killer of the tumor cells so it, again, it, the tumors have evolved all these all these little little ways that allow them to turn off the immune response. And that's, that particular mechanism is somewhat really interesting at the moment is, you know, tumors, tumor cells, and also other tumor-associated cells can make these oxysterols and tend to turn off the NK cells. If that's true, then there may be ways of modifying those NK cells mm -hmm. so that they become resistant to that and then they, they keep on killing despite the fact that there's oxysterols presence and that that would be really exciting and well, would it be a thing that you could kind of manipulate the oxysterols or kind of dampen the, those down target them i suppose 
You you could potentially, and it's more complicated than that because those oxysterols are also important in some immune cells, like in macrophages. Mm. So, but, but one thing we're quite interested in, so you know, Shreb is, is a very complex way it's, it's turned on, but but you can put into a cell an, an, an active Shreb. So potentially you could make an NK cell that has an active Shreb that can't be turned off so that they're oxysterol resistant. And that becomes quite exciting, especially when you think about all the people, all the labs around the world that are trying to generate these NK cell therapies, kind of like, you know, T-cell, like you got CAR T-cell therapies, which are a Mm. big, a lot of real interest in that as as a way of, you know, you make these T-cells in the lab and then you inject them with the patients, they go and find and kill the tumor. But there's also people working on um, CAR NK cells, you know, NK cells that are modified in the lab and then you put them into, into the patients and they can go and kill the tumor cells, you know. We collaborate with Michael Dwyer in um, NUI Galway, and he's he's working on these. So we're thinking, well, is there a way we can make those cells more metabolically robust? So when they get to the tumor, that the tumor can't use all its tricks mm. to turn the cell off. And one of those ways could be to to ensuring that that treb is 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 fully active and that can't be affected by uh, uh, an environment rich in cholesterol and oxysterols. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of the times we think about manipulating the immune system and manipulating metabolism of certain cells, it's kind of on and off switches in a way. Mm. But you you have to kind of find a balance as well because there's the worry that if you, or I suppose if you kind of boosted these NK cells and boosted their function to kill a cancer cell, would that have other off-target effects? And on the flip, you know, for autoimmune disease, for example, and on the flip side, when we look at autoimmune disease and RA, we're worried if we dampen the immune response, you're going to get a high risk of infection. So it is quite a delicate balance within this field. It absolutely is. And, and you know, um, that's part of the reason why people are excited about NK, CAR NK cell therapies, because the CAR T cell therapies have got some quite nasty side effects. You know, I mean, they've the potential for cytokine storm and, and and a lot of these really pro-inflammatory effects that could that can be detrimental to the, to the patient. And there's some evidence that NK cells are less less dangerous in that way. So you're you're constantly looking for that balance. You're absolutely right. I don't know how many times I've given a talk on science and I've had a weighing scales in there. You know, it's all about it's completely about balance because our immune systems are there to protect us from from COVID, from viruses, from tumors. But equally, if they're too good, they give us the, they give us a whole range of other mm. uh, of nasty diseases that you work on, the autoimmune diseases. But, you know, I was only talking to a rheumatologist today, you know, about when anti-TNF therapy came out, you know, and when they first started anti-TNF therapy, they were, they were it come through all the trials, but they were very scared because they didn't know what was going to happen. You know, they, they were pretty sure that anti-TNF might help the arthritis. They didn't know what, what else. And, and there were, so there's a lot of concern there. And there was a potential for horrific side effects, but it, it, now, 20 years on now, it's a really safe drug. And it actually is you know, a really safe drug that targets one single molecule. And it's really a really good drug for people with arthritis. But equally, you know, there was other trials where they were targeting a single, a single molecule like the, and it was the CD28 trial. And, you know, the patients almost dropped dead in front of them. And they were mm. horrifically unexpected side effects, a huge cytokine storm. Mm. So, you know, so there is, you know, there's, there is this balance. You're, you're trying to manipulate a really complicated machine, this immune system, to do what you want it to do. But if you go too far, it starts doing the opposite of what you, you know. So, so yeah, balance is all about. All, all, is, is very important in, in this whole process. But there's been a lot of success in that. You know, we have a number of really successful therapies like anti-TNF, like the checkpoint inhibitors, mm. that in certain circumstances can be really miraculously dr- uh, efficient drugs. Finding out how to make those work better in more more patients is 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 going to be really exciting over the next number number of years.
Yeah, and I think, you know, in certain certain cases, it's that the immune cells themselves that you're targeting or that you're boosting or dampening is pathogenic. So you're kind of bringing it back down to baseline rather than completely inhibiting it or or amplifying it uh, or bringing it up to a baseline, I suppose, as well. Um, and I kind of, I, I know you work on the NK cells, so the natural killer cells, which is a great name um, for a cell. And I know that you kind of see that to be activated, they have to boost their metabolic pathways. And, and this is is important in anti-tumor, but then these seem to be defective in cancer patients. Is that a defect of the NK cell or is that an effect of the cancer, if that makes sense? Absolutely. So if you, if you look in, in solid tumors in particular, NK cells are really dysfunctional. But even, you know, some of the work from Professor Claire Gardner's uh, lab in Trinity, who we work with, shows that even in peripheral, in, in the blood, so a long way away from the tumor, the NK mm. cells aren't working properly. So they they you know they're defective in the things they produce like interferon gamma which is an important cytokine it uses they, they can't they are not they're not very good at making that anymore and this is in the blood a long way from the tumor and this is actually even in patients they, they were looking at um breast cancer patients but it's people the tumor's already been taken out so they're they have a they're in remission from metastatic breast cancer but there's no really no clear tumor mass anywhere so but yet those nk cells are really defective so it's it's likely that the tumors are are secreted may have secreted something like TGF-beta, which can, can turn off NK cells, or these oxysterols, which 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 we're thinking about. But it's clear there's ways they can affect the immune system at distal to where they actually are. So there's one level of of anti of sort of immune suppression that the tumor mediates, and that's within the solid tumor. But they can also affect some of the immune cells at, at a distance, you know, in in, in in these peripheral sites. So there's there's lots of mechanisms being uh, being put out there, you know, there and there's there's a whole range of them, uh, and it's getting it's very complicated. But uh, we're starting to get an impression for it. Um, you know, TGF beta has long been known to be an immune suppressive cytokine, but we now know that that can repress the metabolism of the NK cell as well. So all these things tend to be kind of interlinked so um all the old school immunology is coming and and a lot of what we knew in, in in the established immunology is also working in part through metabolism too yeah and i think as well kind of you're, you focus a lot on kind of the nutrients and uh, how they play a role and maybe kind of talk to you a bit about why you kind of decided to look at the nutrients that are available the nutrients that are being kind of secreted and stuff and then how they kind of impact immune cell function. The reason I started thinking about nutrients was I, I remember I remember the day I have been puzzled by this thing for a long time. The fact that when you when you inhibit mTOR in a T cell, they stop working. mTOR turns off, and if you inhibit mTOR in a dendritic cell, which is the cell that closely interacts, so they're right beside each other. If you inhibit mTOR in the dendritic cell, it works better. And I'm thinking like, on what situation? Could you have, you know, the dichotomy of, you know, mTOR on in the T cell, mTOR off in a dendritic cell, the, the two situations where they work best. And I remember, I, you know, I came home from work and I, I couldn't couldn't switch off and I must have been a very terrible husband that day because I wasn't talking, I was just perplexed by this. And in the end, I thought, well, maybe is there a situation because mTOR is a, is a very important nutrient sensor. And I thought, well, maybe there's a situation where T cells are replete of nutrients and mTOR is turned off, but the dendritic cell next to them are sort of depletion of nutrients and mTOR is turned, turned off. And that will be a situation where they're both aligned in trying to drive a, a robust response. And when I thought about it that way, well, actually, this comes back to what's happening in the lymph node. You know, the, 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 the 
exact microenvironment experienced by one cell could be different to one neighboring cell. And if you look, and there's some lovely images out there by other, other uh, fantastic groups showing that when a dendritic cell is presenting antigen, they can be clustered by you know, up to 10 T cells and also NK cells. So this poor dendritic cell surrounded by all these cells are in close, close proximity. All these cells have a huge appetite for glucose as well and other nutrients. So we thought, well, maybe what's happening here is that the dendritic cell is, is nutrient starved in the middle. And then mm. that's a situation that helps it to be a better activator of T cells. So it was, it was that kind of thought process that, you know, there could be competition for nutrients on this sort of single cell level that really intrigued me. And that's, that's what had, had me sort of obsessed with nutrients for the last uh, 10 years. And that's, that, that's what led to our, uh, us getting the NERC grant because uh, this was quite a, quite a uh, liked the idea that nutrients could be something that could be competed over and potentially even for that reason, I kind of, almost like a signal that was able mm. to sort of signal to a cell as to what sort of nutrient environment it was in and, and change its function accordingly. Yeah, and I think it's it's quite interesting in the sense that it's not it's not a linear thing. It's not that glucose is good or glucose is bad and that it depends on the cell type and the microenvironment, which unfortunately makes it way more complicated and probably much more harder to manipulate and target. Absolutely, yeah. and, and it's not just one nutrient either. So it's amino acids. Mm. It's my, you know my, you know we know that T cells when they become activated they. They have huge uptake rates of methionine, of, uh, of, of amino acids, of glutamine. So there's a whole load of things that could be competitive, you know. Uh, also, you know, you, you know, there's places, you know, where we know oxygen is limiting as well. So there's, it's, it's, re- it's, it's really complica- complicated. And one thing we, we'd really like to be able to do is to be able to try and image some of these gradients and nutrients a bit, a bit better. But we really don't know what's going on there. But it's all, a, lot, a lot of it's still hand-waving, which, which we're all... We're all very good at doing a smithy in the pub after after one of our meetings, but, but you know we, we, we're still, there's still a bit of a lack of the tools to understand what's actually going on in those in in, in vivo in, at those sites where where immune responses are being initiated and are, are being carried out. Because a lot of our knowledge really is due to what we can do in the lab in ex vivo or in in, in vitro, and, and it is different, and we we know it's different. So so we need to try and sort of take those discoveries and find out exactly how they work in a, in a really complicated organism where you have all these cells, competition for nutrients and, and, all, and all the rest. And of course, another thing you should think about is, you know, it's not just about having limited nutrients. You know, we've also worked with, with Lydia Lynch about obesity and you know, how, how having too much nutrients can be just as bad for your immune system. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose kind of what you were talking about there, you know, the in vivo and ex vivo models kind of leads me nicely onto a question I like to ask people and that what cells do you work on? How do you kind of conduct these experiments? How do you execute these experiments? And kind of, I know for you, it might be different, but what would be a day to day for a person in your lab? There's always a balance between, you know, if you want to find out exactly what's happening in the cell, you need to have a, a model system where you can get lots of the cells, you know, to do the biochemistry. So if you want to be a biochemist, you need somewhere you can get lots of cells. If you want to be, you know, the most, uh, the, the immunologist, you know, I mean, wants to do the everything in a, a model organism because it's it's all the dynamics we just talked about are true as well. So so we try to do both. So, but often we would start, so the, the students would start the projects with a, a culture system for NK cells. So so we we can expand these cells out of a spleen. So that takes six days. And at the end of that, we have, we have millions of cells. You know, we can purify them. So we just have NK cells. 
are they exactly the same as the anchor cells that were in 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 the mouse? No, but they are. They're pretty similar. They're they're not. You can you can activate them and get similar responses. They can become better at uh, killing target tumor cells. So they're really good model systems. So that, that would often be what they do in, in the six days before their experiment. They they would have that. Then maybe they might need to purify those anchor cells to get rid of any other contaminating cells that there would usually be a few T cells left. And then depends what experiment they want to use. So they would often activate them with cytokines, the cytokines that the anchor cell might might experience during a normal immune response. Uh, when they do that, they become much better at killing. They might do a, a killing assay where you put those anchor cells with tumor cells in a, in the same well, and you watch them actually kill the tumor cells and see how good they are. And one of the experiments that I mentioned, oxysterols recently, if you take an anchor cell and you activate them with cytokine, they are very good at killing. If you activate them with cytokine in the presence of oxysterols, they just can't kill tumor cells. So it's it's real real black and white in that situation. We also have machines that can, uh, I think you may use it as well, a seahorse machine, which is, uh, it's there's no logic to that name whatsoever. It's not a seahorse. It's not a marine animal, but it's it's something that measures metabolism. And uh, so they might uh, run, a, run an assay there and you can get a, a nice understanding of what the metabolic sort of standpoint of that cell is and what happens if you give oxysterols or give another another sort of a molecule that you might find in a tumor microenvironment, does that also affect the metabolism with anchor cell? Because we now know if you if you limit the metabolism of an anchor cell, invariably they don't kill as well. They don't make the same. They just don't work as well. So we're always on the lookout for new things that, that might be in an, uh, an environment such as the tumor microenvironment that could in- inhibit metabolism because that would be uh, very interesting. Like for instance, uh, TGFB, which we also talked about. So that sounds quite simple, yeah. But it's actually quite a long process. It started mm-hmm. on day one, and on day six, you then purify them. On day seven, you then might do all your assays. Some of these assays take hours. You know, the killing assay takes about seven hours to do. You might, yeah. The seahorse takes a number of hours. So it's 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 a lot of but organization. You know, and I know people who is uh, somebody on use who always ask this question. To any prospective student, not, not me now, but I think it's a good question. They always ask them, do they bake? Because they often think that baking is is it's a real good proxy for doing an experiment. Because whatever about you know making your main dinner, you, you can you can be real hot spots with making a stir fry or whatever. But if you want baking to work, you got to be very precise. You got to you know too much baking powder, it's gone. You know if you don't so. So baking, uh, it's something actually I do a lot of now because I don't do experiments anymore and there's a gap in my life for that. So I, I bake a lot instead of, but you need to be very precise and be very organized. So you can't be five minutes late for an experiment. You gotta be there on time. So your students, often what they learn very quickly is, is how to organize the time. So mm-hmm. uh, you may be running, you know, a new student may run one experiment and they just concentrate on that. But then when you're experienced, you may be running three experiments in parallel, you know that. When I'm waiting for this to happen, I can run that experiment. When we can. So it's often you'd be running around like a, you know, if, when you're very efficient at your time, you can really get lots done, you know, and and you can be, I remember in, towards the end of my time in Dundee, people used to think I was a bit of, a, they used to be a bit scared of me because I was moving so fast. They'd be worried that if I bumped into them, they'd be, they'd be sprawled <laughs> everywhere because I was just, I, was, I had so many things going on at one time. I needed to get there at, at five o'clock because I, I, I had uh, kids to pick up from the crest. And it was just, you know, but it's amazing how much you can, how efficient you can become from, you know this, you just finished your PhD. Remember when you were a first year PhD student and a final year PhD student, how much you get done in a day? It's just, it's, a, it's a, a, all about, it's almost all about organization and, and, and being, being really efficient. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, the, how you prioritize your time is, is very important. Yeah. Um, and I think, I suppose, even what you're saying there about, you know, picking kids up from crash and that can be, 
if your time is limited like that, you're not going to be sitting and having a coffee and chatting away like which I'd be doing. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, that's it. I know. I remember I stopped. I stopped going for coffee when I, we had our first child in, in Dundee because you know I just didn't have the time. But I got the same amount done between mm. uh, between nine and five. Uh, just it was a, it was a blur. There was no chat, no chat and conversation. So. But, you know, you have to do that. But, you know, you realize how, you know, it used to be I'd go in at 9 o'clock and I'd leave at 10, 11 o'clock at night sometimes, you know, just... Mm. But, you know, you'd be chatting away for lunch and, you know, you might just stop and, you know, which was nice if you haven't got that because you have a, a small family. Yeah. You'd still be just as efficient. But, um, but yeah, no, it was it was a different different experience when you, when you have kids. So. And, and how did you kind of find the move back from Dundee? And when you moved back, did you start your own research group then or was there a postdoc in between? No, I started. I started my own lab straight away. But I actually, I was the first person to arrive on level five of the TBSI. So it was empty. Oh, and really? I had nothing. All I had was a computer and a desk. I didn't have a pet. I didn't have anything. So no, so it was completely, uh, completely empty. There was one person on level four. Claire Garden was level four. Uh, one person on level six, Richie, and the rest of the building was empty. Wow. So you know, it, was, it, was, it was weird. It was very surreal. It was very clean. But, <laughs> you know, but, so it took me a long time to get going. I think my first experiments that I did myself was after nine months. It was a very big lag period, which was, quite, was very stressful. Mm. Um, and then my first grant, I think, was over a year afterwards I got it. So, you know, it was a slow burn. But, you know, I had a young family. We, we really wanted to move back to Dublin. So we did that. But, you know, there was definitely a big – people probably know about this. You know, when you start your own group, there can be a big stall period. That can be difficult, you know, because you're you're used to working in a very in a as a postdoc and everything there for you, and all of a sudden, you know, if if you want to put pets, you got to go find a pet. Reagents aren't just there, so it was it was a difficult time, you know, and, and a very stressful time. But once we got going, you know, it, it's it started to come a bit back to normal. But you know, it, it was slow, but we, we got there. But you know, it's very hard for people to set them set them to a group, and I think I I always appreciate that when when people come back that you know that's a that's a, a tough point in their career. And like when you came back, did you have PhD students at that point or was it like how many people was in the lab then? I nothing. So I didn't come back with a big grant. I came back just with a, with a contract to work okay. as a lecturer. So, so I had nothing. I had a bit of a start grant, but it was enough to, not enough to take on, take on anybody, but it was enough to you know, get a few basic reagents. So after nine months, I was, I was doing experiments myself. Mm. And then after a year, I, I was lucky enough to be able to get uh, get a PhD student with a, with a bit of consumables. So then we started, and then you know a few of the grants came in, and we started we started building the group. And you know, I I've been lucky enough that I produced some really great students, and, and Trinity generates some great students as well. So mm. so everyone was very you know they were all really enthusiastic. We all worked really well together. So it was really from from day one, it'd been a very nice environment to work with. Even you know, so it was, you know once even with the first PhD students, so. So that that's great, you know, uh, and and we, and we got going, and now you know, I'm I'm an old man now, so I've been back. I always still think I'm a new I'm a new arrival, but I, I've been back nine years now. So uh, yeah, I, I've got I've got to face facts. I'm definitely a, a, a mid career person now. And and how do you find now, like kind of being a PI and and I suppose taking very much a step back from the lab, so you're not really hands on in there anymore, and it's more of a kind of management and kind of uh, advisory role, I suppose, and and directing experiments. And yeah, how did you find that transition? Do you enjoy that? Well, it's 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 funny because you spend all your career becoming so good at doing experiments, and I, I really used to love like you know, I, I'd say I was pretty good at doing experiments, you know, and then all of a sudden you're out, it's gone. 
And then you're asked to do all these things that you've never been trained in. So, you know, I, I'd never been trained in how to manage a grant. You know, the first grant went a little bit over in the red. You know? <laughs> it was, it was a, a few hairy months there when, like, I, I better get a new grant here because I'm uh, I'm well past the amount of money I had. So nobody told me how to, how to manage a grant. So it was funny, you know, it, it, it is. You're you're really thrown in the deep end. Nobody, nobody told me how to manage a team. So you, you kind of learn as you go along. I did miss the experiments. You know, I used to miss doing the experiments. But, but the reality is when you have a team of people, you can – you can do, you're essentially doing lots of experiments at the one go, you know, you're asking one question and getting the answer. So it's actually really fulfilling. You know, we have all this team and we all meet and discuss what experiments we're doing and then they come back with the results. And you know, that's the fun bit. You can find out what's going on. You can see you know, whether they, the results match what you thought was going to happening or whether it's something different, you can set up troubleshoot or, and so it, it's actually, in one way it's quite gratifying because you have all these things going on. There's always constantly data coming in and that's, that's a fun bit. But you do miss, you know, you do miss being in there at the, at the bench doing the experiments and getting the results. But that's why I took up baking. <laughs> <laughs> You've probably taken up a lot of baking since lockdown as well. God, I've got a, a COVID soda on me at the moment. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely put on a bit of weight since, since lockdown. But I, I'm mostly where I bake, I, I bake all the kids' birthday presents, you know, our, our birthday cakes. So I made one of a, a bunny rabbit cake for my, my son's birthday, who was last month. So, so yeah, I've been doing, doing some creative things, but it's, 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 it is enjoyable. It's <laughs> oh, that's gas. And the other thing I kind of want to ask is, you know, when you're looking at academia as a career, um, what do you find the most stressful aspect of it? And then I suppose what drives that passion or, or why do you kind of want to want to do it, want to stay in academia? Yeah, it is very stressful at times and you go through phases of that. You know, you get better at managing a stress over the years, you know. Um, I think in the early days, I wasn't very good at compartmentalizing, you know, putting one stress and, you know, putting everything in different boxes. Because mm. if you think, it used to be the case, oh, you used to think if you thought of everything once, you just, you, you couldn't cope. You know, you have to, but, you know, that's a problem that I'm going to open. I'm going to open the box next month. You know, mm. I, I don't need to deal with that. So that was really important during that skill. But writing grants is very stressful. Constant, constantly being told, no, it's not good enough. It's very stressful, you know. One piece of advice I took from my, I think, I think this is Kingston Mills who said this, is that you know he allows himself to be pissed off and really annoyed when he doesn't get a grant for one day, and then he just he has to let it go. Mm. Well, I, I I actively do that, so I I allow myself to be to be annoyed for one day. But writing grants is difficult, and it's such pressure. And you know, you know, if you, you need you need to be done, you know, when you have you know a, a lab manager who's reliant on you pulling in funding, that that's their job, you know, and so. You, People are all relying on you, and it's a lot of stress for that. So it is stressful, but but there's a lot of enjoyment as well. So when you do get that funding, it's great. And when you get to to ask those those questions that you wanted to ask and get get the result, it's it's very gratifying. You know, I often think you know it's never the same. So that that's one of the reasons why I love academia. You know, it's never the same because you're constantly moving on, you're constantly learning. You know, it's it's great for somebody who's curious. You know, because as you basically spend your day asking questions. Uh, you can look in the look up the literature, see if there's any answers out there. If there's not, well, what experiment can I design to to address that? Mm. You do the experiment, you get the results, and sometimes you're you're completely wrong, or it opens up new questions. So, you know, if you're curious and you want to know how things work, it's it's really gratifying because you're you're pushing that thing forward, and you can look back. I haven't been here for. I've had a lab for nine years now, but you can look back and say, well, we found that, you know, and that's a new discovery. Nobody knew that before. And now we know that, that this is uh, something new that needs to be considered. And so, so that's really, you know, gratifying. Whereas, you know, if I'd been an accountant, what have I been doing? I would have been doing somebody's books and, you know, it would just be completing tasks and then moving on to the next thing. And I'm not sure that I would have got the same gratification out of that uh, because I think I'm definitely, I'm a, I do, I'm a scientific sort of person. I'm, 
curious about things. I do ask questions. I want to know how things work. Uh, so I think it really, the career really suits me. And I think for me, it, it, it balances out. You know, it is stressful. It's hard work. But I get the reward out of it. I, I get that, you know, I, I enjoy seeing all, my, all the students succeed. And I enjoy all, all those aspects of the job. So, it's, so, it's, so it is worth it. But yeah, it, it's, it, I think it's a question that people at all stages of scientific career ask themselves. You know, I'm, I'm, you know if I commit to going down academia, it, it's a hard route. And, mm. you know, it's not guaranteed success. You know, you got to weigh, weigh, weigh it up, you know. But, you know, you, you know, yourself, you've just become a postdoc. You're continuing on another postdoc route. But something I always say to all, all my staff, you know, that it doesn't matter what point you decide that maybe academia is not for you. If you do a PhD, that gives you added value. It gives you skills that everybody wants. You do a postdoc, it gives you more skills that everybody wants, mm. you know, whether it be in, in pharma, whether it be in completely different, different disciplines. So I always say, you know, there's lots of routes out, you know, uh, of academia where there are great jobs to be had but uh, yeah I, I just the most stressful part was that postdoc the pi you know mm. there were times that it nearly broke me you know it was it was it was very difficult you're you're really reliant on getting these grants it's you're competing with so many fantastic scientists around the world it was a huge pressure and you know the thought of failure and then i don't have my dream of being uh, i really want to be an academic uh, scientist it was it was it was difficult but you know thankfully we got through it so you know i, I managed to get a job you know there's, there's always a, an interesting story about how i got my job you know i went for an interview in in, in trinity and I, I went i got i got an interview which is great it was for a lectureship one of these usher lectureships i went to interview and i thought it looked pretty well all right not not great uh, but i had a few contacts in the, in the department because my sister-in-law worked in 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 the department so i found out who the, the other applicants were afterwards and i googled them up and they were they were all brilliant they all had grants i had no grants they all had you know starter grants so i was like no chance i'm going to get that job so I went out with my friends and had a few drinks. I went back to Dundee and I forgot about it. But I, I didn't realize I never actually got a no. Uh, and then I think it was about four months later, I got an email saying, we're offering you this job. And I think it's the only time, as you can probably tell, I, I'm not speechless often. That was the only time I was actually speechless. I sit on the couch with the computer. I just handed the, the computer to my wife. I was like, oh couldn't, my couldn't believe it. So yeah, they, they offered me a job. So I know there's a whole range of scenarios that happened in those four months but people you know negotiating for this and pulling out and then so whatever I was well well down the list of applicants but I got the job and you know and once I got us I said well I'm foot in the door you know you're not, you're not stopping me now so, yeah. so off, off I went but you know you, you take your luck when you can get it and, yeah. and I was obviously very lucky there but and yeah that was the most surprising evening of my life was when I opened that email God and it was like four months after you probably had forgotten <laughs> completely forgot about it. I was planning we just moved we just moved house in Dundee we had our we set up a whole new two three year plan you know completely forgot that oh my god and then how like soon after did you move back to Dublin then well that, that was in in March and I was back in Dublin on the in August so pretty right. soon so okay. yeah, yeah I just just tied things up and, and, and got back you know so so oh yeah so we got back and then and then of course you know so I had a job but I had an empty desk and then I need to get money so it's the stress of getting money so so it has been stressful over, over the years. Uh, it's been difficult over the years, but it's also very rewarding at mm. times as well. So, so it's a real, yeah, I suppose, you know what? Dorian always said to me, my mentor, you know, no matter what career you go to, if you want to be at the top of it, it's going to be hard work. If you want to mm. be a, a consultant surgeon, you know, those people work for years and years and years, you know, doing a degree and then their residency, you know, you know it's hard to get to the top of anything. If you want to be at the top accountant, you've got how many exams you got to do. So if you're ambitious and you want to, you want to get to the top of anything, you know, science is no different. It's, it's hard, but it's worth it if that's what you want. 
Yeah, and I think you kind of have to love it. And I think if you if you didn't love it and if you weren't ambitious, as you said, you probably would have got out of it, you know, because there's such a lot of rejection. I mean, I'm only at the start of my career, essentially, because in the PhD, you're kind of, I mean, it's, it's stressful trying to do a thesis, but you don't have any external, you know, grants and that kind of thing and, and applying for jobs. You're kind of secure for three years or four years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely do think if you didn't love it, you'd kind of get out. Yeah, it, it, as a PhD, it is very stressful, but it's you against the project. So that's, mm. you know, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's you against what's going on. So it, it, it is very stressful for PhD. And most, most PhD students will, will say there was time when they, they almost turned their back on, you know, mm. after my first year of my PhD, I, I decided I was going to finish my PhD and go back and become a teacher. Really? But it was just, oh, yeah, it gone horribly wrong. Nothing had worked for the first year. And then we change a project and it went better and I loved it by the end of it. So, you know, so it, but it is different. And then you, but then you come out of your PhD and, you, and you're a postdoc and you're applying for fellowships. Now it's you putting yourself there out, out against the world and saying, what do you think of me? And you know, yeah. it's hard for them to say, well, not much. Yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to take that, you know, or when the grants, you know, you, you, your, your grant application doesn't even make the cut for, you know, shortlisting, you know, that, that's has happened to me as many, more times than it's even made the shortlist. You know, what's my success rate with grants? Probably less than one in 10. So if so every time you get, yeah, yeah, I got funding, nine times saying that, you know, good enough. Yeah, we, we, you're, you're way off. I don't. What are you thinking? You're mad. So you know, you, and I've heard I've heard the, the the quote said from. Oh, so I need to find out who this exactly said this. But from it was a Nobel laureate that said you know, that the best scientists aren't necessarily the best geniuses. They're the people who get up off the ground most often because you, you get kicked down and put down in science so often. It's the ones who get back up again and say, "I'm going to keep on going." They're the ones that are successful. Yeah. And because if you were if, if you were sensitive in science, you wouldn't get past you know the first hurdle. No, definitely not. No, and like I, I've noticed now, like I'm only kind of two months in a postdoc, and I've noticed even the conversations have changed because before the run up to your thesis, everyone's just asking, "Yeah, you getting your thesis in?" And how, you know, how are you getting on with writing? And now it's like, "Are your papers out?" And you know, there's an extra stress. Yeah. It's not good enough yeah. that you just submitted a huge manuscript of work. I know. It's like you know, but where are you putting? Where are you submitting that to? And you know, that's it's yeah definitely stressful but kind of one of the last questions I, I tend to ask people is if you weren't in academia and if you weren't a scientist oh how do you think your life would have turned out uh, I, I don't I mean you've mentioned now accountancy so I don't think probably you would have ended yeah. up there maybe you could have been a rugby no. player no no it wasn't good enough no, <laughs> I, I, lo- I, lo- I love I love rugby I wasn't good enough I don't know what I've done. I really don't know. As I said, I never thought much along the way. So as I said, I, I, I kind of fell into a PhD just because, you know, we had a very good class in biochemistry and there's the, they're all going to do PhDs. I was like, oh, well, well I guess if they're doing them, I should do one. So I kind of just said, well, I'll do this. Didn't think too much about it. So I didn't really think about careers along the way. So if I happened, maybe teaching. So yeah. there, there was one point, you know, when, you know, my wife was really keen to come back to Dublin. We had a kid in Dundee, you know, I was applying for all these fellowships and I was getting rejections left, right and centre. And so I had the thought in my head, you know, well, I'll give it one more year. And if I, if I can't get my own group, well, then I'll have to get something else. And I guess in my head, I was, I was probably thinking maybe teaching, become a mm. teacher, you know. But I wasn't sure, really, to be honest. I hadn't, you know, I, I hadn't let myself. I was always very focused. I hadn't really let myself consider it yet. There was one year left, you know, and I was going to try it. And then... And four months into that one year, that email came along, and I was like, "So, so I, I was released. <laughs> and I, I didn't have to think of it anymore." But, but I'm, I may be a teacher, you know. I, I always quite like teaching. I, I do like the lecturing I do now. You know, I have to say it does take second second fiddle to the research because that's really where my passion lies. But 
But in, in terms of, you know, seeing our young scientists come through, you know, it's great to see those passionate scientists come through. And, and some of them are really fantastic in Trinity. So it, it's good to see the new wave coming through. But I enjoy, I, I do enjoy teaching. So maybe a teacher. Yeah. Else, who knows? Who knows where else could I end? I, I suppose as PI, you're kind of a mentor and a teacher anyways. You know, so you're always teaching yeah, in a way. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're trying anyway. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, some of my some of my lads disagree with some of the things I teach sometimes, but you know we're we're, we're trying to you know it's 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 science you know science is by uh, in some ways imprecise in a way you know you're you're really sort of groping your way forward sometimes and often you know you can ask a question and you get the completely opposite answer and that's much more exciting than the answer yeah. you expected. We, we we try to move forward, yeah. But yeah, I, I do enjoy uh, being a mentor. You know, I think I think most of the guys in my lab are, are happy enough, and I I certainly try to make it so and and try to show them all the opportunities that are ahead of them, whether it be academia or not. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, Dave, th- thank you so much. That's, we've come to the end. Uh, thanks again for coming well, thanks, on. Thanks Unraveling very much time. for having me. It's about the only time somebody's going to talk about what I've done in my life so much. You know, I always say to people when they're doing a PhD, make sure you enjoy your viva because nobody's ever going to talk about your, your thesis again in the same amount of detail. I suspect that nobody's ever going to talk to me in the same detail about my road from, you know, somebody thinking about accountancy to where I am now in the same amount of detail as you have now. So I've... I've, yeah. It's all out there now. It's all it's out all, there. It's all out there for everyone to, <laughs> to hear. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 